Well, where we are and uh, being where we are with others, you know, is, is important and it's meaningful and maybe more meaningful than we realize. And uh, that is probably the thing that I really discovered on this trip is how important that is. Um, my month in the Middle East was extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And I must say the first two weeks with the team, I was with uh, five guys, some of them from this church, and uh, Arthur Butt from Manchester and Dave Petrash from uh, the Vineyard Adoption up in Wolfboro. Uh, it was over the top. I mean, it, it was absolutely incredible. Uh, anything you could ever hope for a guy's trip to be, uh, this was it. I mean, I, I know that, what was that Wild at Heart thing? Remember that, Wild at Heart? It was nothing. It was nothing. This, this was way beyond Wild at Heart. These guys were, were absolutely awesome. Yeah. Uh, if you ever want to know what Tim's boys are like, <laughs> just wind Tim up and let him go. And it was like watching all five of his boys at once. It was, it was <laughs> quite, quite the... Uh, Quite the thing. Any nook or cranny or cave or crack he could crawl into, he just had to find out what was in there. Uh, that's right. Uh, we discovered that. Tim taught us that. Just, <laughs> just because it says don't come here doesn't mean a thing. <laughs> uh, uh, we, we did some, some things I haven't been able to do in Israel for a lot of years, uh, we were able to get into Bethlehem this trip. Uh, we were actually able to get up onto the Temple Mount, which uh, I haven't been able to do since 2003. And uh, we had the opportunity to get up there, and uh, just things opened up for us. It was really, really incredible. Um, we connected well. We supported one another, uh, taught one another. We laughed together. We cried together. We prayed together, we sang together, we walked, and I mean we walked a lot together. If you ever go to Jerusalem, you're either going up or down. There's, there's no flat ground in Jerusalem. It's a city built on seven hills, and we walked over every one of them a dozen times each. And uh, I know by the end of the trip, Pat Wilson was saying he never wanted to climb another stair as long as he lived. Um, but it, it, was, it was awesome. I'm, I'm very proud of every one of them. And, and I can tell you there wasn't a bad moment in two weeks uh, that I can remember. I've never had a team that we haven't had some type of emotional or, you know, some type of negative thing happen. This team, it was, it was awesome. You guys were, were great. Thank you. Uh, I really had hoped to bless them by facilitating the trip and leading it. I got to tell you, I came home a lot more blessed than I think I, I gave to them. So thank you guys for, for being there with me. And uh, it, was, it was cool. So I remember the, the last night they were there with me. I, I stayed an extra two weeks. Uh, they had to leave for the airport at 2 in the morning. And so I arranged for an airport taxi to come and pick them up. And I walked out with them, you know, watched them get loaded up and wave goodbye, you know, and felt kind of alone for a moment. But hey, it's two in the morning, and 
I went back to bed, you know. <laughs> had no problem getting to sleep. But the next morning uh, was interesting. I had a, a bunch of business to take care of, uh, plan for the second half of my trip and turn in the van and get a small car and close up the apartment we had rented and all of that. And that took till about 10 o'clock in the morning and I had all my gear in the, in the car and everything's locked up and I'm ready to go. And all of a sudden I really felt alone because I had nothing I had to do. There was no agenda. There was no one to lead. It was just me. So I get into this kind of mental dialogue with the Lord, you know, and I, I kind of said in my head, well, here I am, you know, in the middle of Jerusalem all by myself, you know, and now what? And very clearly the Lord spoke to my heart, and this is what he said. He said, it's not where you are, but who you're with. And I thought, oh, how true, how true, you know, and I, I'm reflecting that back on the five guys, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, it really was much more significant sharing all of that with them. You know, we really got tight. Uh, but that wasn't what he was talking about. As he went on to say, and now I have you all to myself for two weeks. And when he spoke that to my heart, it was like his presence dropped out of the sky and buckled my knees. And I began to cry and cried and cried and cried for five hours. I could not stop crying. Every time I would try to compose myself, I mean, I'm on the streets of Jerusalem. Right? I'm just walking. I can't eat. I can't drink anything. I can't talk to people because if I open my mouth, I'm, you know, tears are streaming down my face. I got sunglasses on trying to hide that, you know, and I'd stop and I'd go, all right, Lord, and like, boom, it hit me again. My knees would buckle, and I just started crying again. I walk over to the upper room. I go in there, and I'm just blubbering like an idiot, you know, and go up on the walls. I'm walking the walls around the old city, crying over the city. I mean, uh, and all I could think of was how awesome God is. I just kept in my head, it's just turning over. Oh, you're so magnificent, your glory and, and your power and your might, and you're so wonderful in all your ways, and your loving kindness is so good. And, and all of a sudden, I realized that I had become a living, walking psalm. It's all I could think about was him. It was all I could express was his presence. He had drawn so near to me that nothing else mattered except him. And it was awesome. It was just absolutely awesome. And uh, I thank him that he backed off when I had to drive. <laughs> because I don't think I would have got a city block uh, otherwise. So uh, I cannot describe to you the, the overwhelming intensity of his presence. I, I, I don't know words that would do it justice. Would do it. It's something that has to be experienced. So I felt like I had become a psalm, as I said. I was in, interspersed throughout this day, and throughout the next two weeks, he kept reinforcing that, that one line, it's not where you are, but who you are with. And uh, the power of that statement came to a screaming reality for me when I was in the uh, rose city of Petra in Jordan. And when I say rose city, it's not because they grow roses there. 
It's the city is carved out of sandstone mountains. And the city is so big, it takes 12 days, 10 hours a day to see all of it. And it's so large that the Romans built a city, a full-size Roman city, inside the city of Petra. And the Roman city is maybe a tenth of the whole city. And it's all carved into sandstone mountains. The mountains are rose and uh, gold and white. And as the sun moves across the sky, the colors in the cliffs change. But the overriding color is that it, it's rose-colored. It's absolutely stunning. It's a beautiful place. And uh, so the reason I, I went to Petra mainly, well, to explore. I love to explore the city. I've been there several times. But the last time I was there, I met a Bedouin shepherdess. And some of you have heard this story. Her name was Hananah. And um, I was on a, a mountaintop outside of Petra. And she came by. She was herding her goats and introduced herself. And we talked a little. And she said, oh, would you like to come to my home for tea? And I said, well, where do you live? And she says, well, up there in that Bedouin village. Uh, up there was about three miles. She's got a herd of goats. It's maybe 3.30 in the afternoon. I'm doing my math. You know, no street lights. I said, you know, if I go up there, I know the Bedouin. You don't have tea. You have a meal, you know. Once it gets dark, I said, I'd fall into a crevice somewhere and, you know, never make it home. So I said, no, I'll have to decline. She's okay, but would you like to have tea? I said, well, I just explained why I can't. She said, oh, no problem, no problem. She takes a bag off her shoulder. She pulls out a sterling silver teapot, a jug of water, tea, um, sugar, and glasses, and lights a fire and makes tea on the mountaintop. And we spend the next hour sharing our lives with one another. And she gave a gift for me to take home to my wife. And, uh, you know, when she left, I just sat there and wept. Because I'm thinking, you know, as a Christian, hospitality is a big deal. But I don't walk around with a bag with a teapot in it. True. She taught me something about hospitality. And I thank the Lord the next day I was able to extend that to a young Korean boy who was in Petra by himself. And we spent the day together, and I shared my lunch with him and my life with him, and we spent like 12 hours together. And at the end of the day, he wept, you know, and I was able to transfer that hospitality on. But she taught me a lesson. I thought, I'd love to go back. And Martha gave me some gifts for her, and so... One of the things I had asked her, you know, I said, what kind of vision do you have for your life? You know, you're a Bedouin shepherdess in the backside of Petra, you know, herding goats through the hillside. I mean, did you ever have dreams of a, uh, an education or, you know, going somewhere, or, you know, America or something? She said, eh, as a little girl, but she says, uh, if you came back here in 20 years at this time of day, Hannah and I would be herding the goats, you know, and. So I went back to where Hananah herded the goats, and she wasn't there. The goats were, but a shepherd was. And I said, oh, where's Hananah? And he said, oh, well, she works up at the high place selling Bedouin goods to tourists now. The high place is a sacrificial altar built by the Edomites uh, 3,000 years ago. It's the second highest mountain in Petra. So I said, well, if you see Hananah, would you tell her, 
I will look for her there tomorrow. And he said, I'll tell her. So the next morning I get up about 5 o'clock and I don't have breakfast at the hotel. And I'm reading in Hebrews about the priesthood of Aaron as opposed to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And it talks about, you know, Aaron is Moses' brother and he's the first high priest of Israel. But Aaron died. His priesthood ended. The priesthood of Christ never ends. He is after the order of Melchizedek, who had no beginning and no end, but was a priest to God forever. And so it was an interesting read, and I kind of cataloged that in my head, you know, and uh, went into Petra, and 6.30 in the morning, I'm climbing up the second highest mountain in Petra, and I get up to the top about 8.30, and Hananah's not there, but there's this uh, Bedouin guy, and uh, we're, we're in a discussion. He knows Hananah. He says she'll be around probably around noontime, and I said, well, I'll come back, you know, and he's showing me about the, the sacrificial place, and out of nowhere, he says, and if you look over there, uh, that white dome on top of the mountain, that's Aaron's tomb. So I'll show you that first clip. So I, of course, make the connection between my scripture reading and, you know, this guy out of the blue, you know, we're in one conversation, all of a sudden he's pointing out Aaron's tomb. So, of course, the logical question is, well, how do I get there? You know, and he says, oh, no, no, no. He says, you can't go there. It's way too far, too many trails. You get lost very high. He says, you need a guide. Okay. See you later. Tell Hannah and I'll be back later. 
and I get on the backside of the second highest mountain in Petra. Forty-five minutes later, I come to a Bedouin tent and, oh, come in, have tea, have tea. So this guy, his 90-year-old mother, his two-year-old daughter, wife, a bunch of other little siblings running around, and we have tea and talk about family and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden he says, so you know, of course, about Aaron's tomb. I said, well, of course. How do I get there? He said, oh, no, 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 you can't, you can't go there. He says, it's much too far for you. And too many trails, you'll get lost. It's too high to climb. He says, you better look at other things. I said, okay, see you later. So I hit the trail, and 45 minutes later, I am lost. I have no idea where I am. I'm somewhere on the backside of Petra following this trail, and I don't know where it's going. So along comes this Bedouin with two camels, and he's got a tourist on each one. So I said, hey, if I keep following this trail, where am I going to go? Aaron's tomb, right? That's what he says. You're going to Aaron's tomb, but you can't go there. I said, why? He says, it's too far. Too many trails, you'll get lost. It's way too high. Better you turn around and go somewhere else. I said, okay. So, you know, tell me no once, right, Tim? But tell me no three times. I got to go there. I got to find this place. There's no way, you know, I'm not going there. So I'm another half hour on the trail, and I look behind me, and I see another couple walking behind me about a quarter of a mile. So I kind of slow down, and they catch up, and I'm thinking, oh, it would be good to have company, you know, and they don't speak English. I don't speak whatever they're speaking, which turned out to be French. And, uh, but we worked it out that they're going to Aaron's tomb and have no idea where it is. So we're all in the same boat. So, so what we decided is I would lead sometimes, and then they would lead sometimes, and would swap off. And uh, so I was in the lead and lost the trail, and I'm standing there. They catch up, and I'm going... Like this, and he says, I said, nah, I don't think that trail looks good. I said, what about that? No. So how about this one? So that's how we followed the trail. We'd make these decisions. And at one point, this Bedouin woman comes running out and says, no, 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 don't go on that trail. You cannot go to Aaron's tomb. So we knew that was the one we should be on, right? <laughs> so we go on that trail. And I want to show you uh, four perspectives so that you can see the type of distance and height that we were covering. Um, the next clip is right after that encounter. See it up top? Yeah, I hope it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you do three and four? So we, we haven't even started the ascent yet. We have gone down and come up. We're about level. 
So this is the beginning of the ascent, and uh, you know we climb another two hours up the ascent trail. It's an hour and a half. So clip five and six, reaching the entrance to the ascent. So that's looking from Petra across the Jordan Valley into Israel. And the wilderness, what's called the wilderness of sin, where they wandered for 40 years. If you want to look it up in the scriptures, it's called Mount Hor, H-O-R, is where Aaron was uh, buried. So, so we make it to the top and we congratulate each other and take lots of pictures and pull out our brown bag lunches and eat and drink water and celebrate that we did it. And uh, The woman who was hiking with the guy had a respiratory problem like Martha used to have with that dry coughing. Um, I was amazed she made it up there, but 
they had to rest for an extended period, so I said, well, I'm going to stop my descent. So about 15 minutes down, uh, I get to a point where I just lose the trail. I can't see it anywhere, so I kind of stop and scope around, and I look, and over here I see, see the trail, and so I turn, and now my left foot is on the down slope of the mountain. And as I step down, I step on a rock that's on top of an embedded boulder, and my left foot rolls down that rock, hits the bottom, and rolls nicely over with a snap, crackle, and pop. And the pain rushes to the top of my head, and I look down, and the bottom of my foot is looking up at me. And I have broken my ankle. 15 minutes from the top, two and a half hours out from the nearest Bedouin tent who had the screaming lady, don't go there, don't go there. And so, you know, in that moment of sound and pain, there were probably a million rapid thoughts about the ways you can die in 96 degrees. You know, I had a half of two liter bottle of water left. Um, you know, so I remembered it's not where you are. Who you're with. So I reach down with my left hand and I grab my ankle and I say, Jesus, if you don't heal me, I die here today. I rebuke the pain in the name of Jesus Christ and the pain vanished in an instant. And I heard the Spirit of God say to me, Start walking and don't stop till I tell you. So I stood up, I lifted my left foot, and I put it down. And when I did, it was like I had stepped into a foot massage machine. And I felt this working. And every step I took, I'd hear snap, crackle. And as I walked, my foot healed. Two and a half hours later, the 90-year-old woman steps out of her tent and says, you can stop now. <laughs> she says, come in and take a rest. Then she does this. This is what my mother used to do. Right. So where have you been? <laughs> where have you been, she says. I said, well... I've been to Aaron's tomb. She does this. She praises the Lord. So I'm sitting in her tent at the bottom of the second highest mountain in Petra, and Hananar is at the top. So off I go and climb that second mountain with a broken ankle that the Lord was holding. The intimacy of his presence was so real. As I was walking that trail, now it's 96 degrees in the desert. It's a dry heat, but it's still heat. And I would think in my mind, man, it's hot. It is really hot. And a cool breeze would come and just blow on me. And I'd lift my hat. <laughs> it was like air conditioning. It was amazing. I mean, I didn't even have to speak it. And they just say, don't worry, Dick. I'm with you. I've got you. 
you're with me now. It was just overwhelming, overwhelming. So I hooked up with Hananar and I sat down at her, her booth with her. We had tea again and it was kind of cool. And I told her about the impact she had on me those years ago and uh, presented her the gifts that Martha had sent. And then she gave me some gifts for Martha and for Katrina. And, and I told her about my ankle and my ankle's about this big now. You know, it, it was purple and uh, it was tender, but it wasn't broken anymore. I was walking. So she says, well, I'll take you out on the Bedouin Trail so you don't have to climb down the mountain. And uh, so we start to walk, and I've got a pretty hefty backpack on, and she says, uh, give me the pack. I said, I can't give you the pack. I mean, how's that going to look, you know? You're a guy, and you're a girl, and, you know, and you're carrying the pack. She does this, right? She says, you know, my father died since I saw you last. In all my life, I carried my father's pack. You give me that pack. <laughs> and she carried my pack. She called her uh, cousin on her cell phone, and they met us at the end of the trail in his pickup truck. And we went to the springs of Moses, and we drank water from the rock that Moses struck. Uh, it was very important to her that we do that. And I now have another daughter in Petra, a Bedouin daughter, and uh, very special. We, we ate together, and we prayed and blessed each other, and uh, I went on my way. And uh, it was an awesome experience. And, of course, experientially, you know, I mean, wow, right? Wow. I mean, you guys were here when I called from the upper room, you know, after the breakout of the Holy Spirit there. You, you guys weren't here for that. Sorry. <laughs> I was in the upper room, and a hundred-plus Brazilian Catholic charismatic showed up, began to pray and sing in tongues and blew the roof off. The Holy Spirit fell. People were dropping on the floor, crying out in repentance. People were running in from the street, saying, what's going on in here? What's going on? Oh, tell us what to do. I mean, it was so... So New Testament, it was awesome. For an hour and a half, Holy Spirit was just filling this place. So I FaceTimed them on Pentecost Sunday here to give the report. So that was kind of neat. I mean, it was that kind of trip, you know. So anyways, you know, experientially, it's awesome. Uh, it's awesome to be in a place where the Lord, you know, is in an extreme uh, circumstances, uh, just really lent credence to the statement. It's not where you are but who you're with. But the deeper, deeper application of the quote is the theology of it. See? Because it's not always been that way. It hasn't always been. In fact, it, where you were was very important at one time in relating to the Lord, especially since the Lord called the people to himself. And the first reference we have of an important place is the tent of meeting in the wilderness as the Jews were moving out of, uh, moving towards the promised land. In Exodus 33, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Okay? And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting. See, they'd go to a 
place, okay, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. Each one would stand at his tent door, watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses. How would you like that? Yeah, that's really cool. And when the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. He stayed in the place. You see? You see, for Joshua, it was more important to be in the place where God had come than it was to be with Moses, the man that God had come to meet with. And for this time, for Joshua's time, that was right. It was absolutely appropriate. This was the place to be in order to connect with God, absolutely, the tent of meeting. Then after they enter into the promised land, the kingdom is established under David, and a decision is made to build a more permanent dwelling for God. And King David's son Solomon builds the temple. So in 1 Kings 8, uh, I, I love this set of scriptures. It says, and after he builds it, it says, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ephanim, which is the seventh month, and all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark, and they brought up the Ark of the Lord in the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles." And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, uh, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the place. He filled the house. It was an important place. Then Solomon said, The Lord had said he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. A place for you to dwell forever. And that's exactly what they believed. The temple would stand forever. I mean, it makes sense, right? If God lives in there, who's going to mess with that? Right? Do you know who lives in that house? 
right? So they believed this was eternal. His house would stand forever. So once again, the place where you were became the important thing. To go to the temple for a Jew was the ultimate act of faith. For most Jews, it was the best you could do. Go to the temple, go onto the temple mount courtyard, give a sacrifice to the priest, but you could never go inside. You could never experience the closeness of the presence of God. Only the priest could do that, and only once a year. So over time, the buildings become the focus. And we see this in Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? Now, did you catch that? The close of the age. You see, the destruction of the temple buildings in their minds could only mean the end of the age. If that temple comes down, the world ends. That's how important the place was. But it's no longer about stone buildings in God's economy. In John 2, 18, So the Jews said to him, that's Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about the temple of his body. What was it that made the tent of meeting in the temple so significant? They were the point of contact, the place where heaven intersected earth. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus had come, and the prophet Isaiah had declared him to be Emmanuel, that is, God with us. John says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then follows that up in John 1, 14 with this, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was speaking about his body. Jesus was the point of contact. Jesus was the intersection between the divine and the human. Man could touch God, and God could touch man. He had become the temple. He had become the tent of meeting. It's not, that's not where it ends for us. Because now in our time, in our reality, we've come to acknowledge, although I don't believe we understand how powerful this really is, but we are. We are the body of Christ. Listen, he was speaking about his body. We are the body. Tear down this temple. This temple was his body. We are 
the body of Christ. That means we, corporately, we have become the point of connection between heaven and earth. God intersects heaven with earth here amongst us, where we are, when we worship, when we share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Heaven intercepts earth in and through us. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the living God. So I'm really glad to be here with you, LRVC, today. I turn to someone and tell them, I'm excited to be here with you in the temple of God. Right? It's a good thing. Yeah. But you see, it's not where you are. Right, it's not where you are, and, and I'm, I'm talking about this place on Sunday morning. This is not the, the end-all to beat-all. It's not about where you come. It's who you're with. It's who you're with. Who's, who's traveling with you today? You know, who are you riding with today? Who's on the back of your bike? See, this thing goes much deeper and becomes much more intimate than we ever imagined. Because it's not only is there a corporate dynamic of being in one place and one accord, and we've talked about that in the past. There's a lot of power in that. But there is also a personal and intimate dynamic of the believer who suddenly becomes the receptacle of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit and realizes the truth and reality of St. Paul's question to the Corinthian church. Do you not know, haven't you yet come to realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You're the temple. Your body is the temple. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The tent of meeting is you. You're the covering for the presence of the Lord. When the cloud descends, where's it going to come? I hope so. I hope so, Bob. Turn to someone and tell them, I'm excited to be here with you today. <laughs> Not where you are, but who you're with. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is who we are with and who is with us. Not just here in this building on Sunday mornings, but wherever we go and wherever we are and wherever we are willing to call upon his name, to express his glory, to become the point of contact between heaven and earth. The kingdom of God is within you. Now what Jesus said, it's within you. We had a very, I, I thought last week's service was just like over the top ministry that happened at the end of the service. And uh, so we go out with Stu and Arlene to T-Bones, right? This is, this is wild. And uh, we sit down at the table and the waitress comes over. She looks at Martha. She says, you, you're back again. She drops to her knees and she says, now I know. I've got to get back to God. It's like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> she had been there a couple of days before or the week before with Eric, and, and 
she said, I don't remember ever even mentioning the Lord, you know? But she became a tent of meeting. You know, the presence was there, you know? Listen, evangelism is easy. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. You know, set yourself on fire so people will come and watch you burn. 